Today we are going to look at the biography and the work of William Tyndale. Um, he was called God's outlaw or the most dangerous man in England during the time in which he lived. And again, if you recall uh, from last month, we're doing a series of biographies, profiles of important Christians in the life of the church whose work and ministry helped further the kingdom of God. And if you recall from last time, we talked about John Wycliffe and the work that he did to try to help all English people, all English-speaking people, have a translation of the Bible in their own language that they could understand. So William Tyndale comes on the scene after Wycliffe is gone. William Tyndale was born around the year 1494 in Melksham Court, Stinchcombe, which was a small village located in uh, Dursley, Gloucestershire. And I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. <laughs> Sorry about that, Gloucestershire. Tyndale's family had some aristocratic connections. He was descended from Baron Adam de Tyndale, a tenant in chief of Henry I. So that meant that his ancestor was a high ranking aristocrat of the time. And Tyndale himself began, uh, once he had completed his um, studies as a child and as a young man, he went on to Oxford and he began a Bachelor of Arts at Oxford University in 1506. So Tyndale was considered to be a true scholar and a genius. He was so fluent in eight languages that it was said one would think any of them to be his native tongue. He is frequently referred to as the architect of the English language even more so than William Shakespeare. So many of the phrases that Tyndale coined are with us today. And there was a long list in my research that I was doing, there was a long list of phrases that are, would be familiar to just about anyone even today, but I didn't have time to put that in this presentation. But he coined many phrases that we use today. So Tyndale received his bachelor's in 1512, and he uh, entered the clergy. He became a subdeacon in the church. He received his master of arts in 1515, and he was held to be a man of virtuous disposition, leading an unblemished life. The masters allowed him to start studying theology but the official course did not include the systematic study of scripture. So those of you who've taken the systematic theology course, uh, if you can imagine uh, going, you know, going to college and wanting to study such a thing, and it wouldn't have been available in those times. <clears throat> so Tyndale complained of the lack of systematic scripture study. He said, they have ordained that no man shall look on the scripture 
until he be nozzled in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of scripture. Now, the word nozzled appears in there. Does anybody know what that means? <laughs> That's kind of an archaic word. I could not even find an explanation of that word. I'm sorry, Greg? Yoke, okay. Uh, so to put someone, something on someone. So Tyndale is saying they put upon us heathen learning before we are allowed to study the scriptures. Scholars believe that Tyndale was influenced by the Lollards who were active in Gloucestershire. Tyndale was also influenced by the work of Martin Luther in Germany. Tyndale said, Christ desires his mysteries to be published abroad as widely as possible. I would that the gospels and the epistles of Paul were translated into all languages of all Christian people that they might be read and known. Now, if you recall from last time, John Wycliffe had used the Latin Vulgate Bible as the basis for his English translation. At the time that Wycliffe was doing his work, he did not have available to him the scriptures in their original languages, the New Testament in Greek and the Old Testament in Hebrew. Now, in William Tyndale's time, he was able to obtain the New Testament in Greek, partly due to the work of a man called Desiderius Erasmus and the work of other scholars in Europe. Erasmus was a famous scholar and uh, Renaissance humanist who was working in Europe. And at one time, Erasmus had actually come to England and taught at Oxford. So the, the work that Erasmus was doing was becoming widespread throughout Europe and England. Erasmus compiled and edited the Greek scriptures following the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So now we come to an important historical development in the history of Europe. And I don't know how well you can see that picture, but that is a, a picture of a painting of the Ottoman Turks conquering the city of Constantinople in 1453. And, you know, if you're like me, you're kind of like, well, okay, why is this important? And why do I need to know about it? Well, this was truly the end of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had kind of limped along from the time of Christ, had various successes and failures, and had ended up being headquartered in Constantinople, uh, far away from Rome, even though it was still called the Roman Empire. Um, and the fall of Constantinople was truly the end of the, Roman, the ancient Roman Empire. Now, prior to this uh, devastation of the city of Constantinople, um, for some time, Greek scholars had gone to the Italian city-states. So there was sort of a dialogue between 
Greek Christians and Christians in the West, in Rome. Um, you know, if you look on a map, Greece and Rome are not far away from each other. I mean, they're not, not that, you know, you hop on a boat and you go across the Adriatic Sea and there you are. Um, and so there had been increasing communication and dialogue between Greeks and Italians uh, through the ages. A cultural exchange was begun in 1396 by the Chancellor of Florence, Italy. He invited the Byzantine or Greek scholars to come lecture at the University of Florence. And then again, finally, in 1453, the capital city of the Byzantine Empire was invaded and taken by the Ottoman Turks. And so after that, Greeks fled to the West. So there was a, a big movement to the West of people who had been living in, Greek-speaking Greek people who had been living in uh, the regions of the Byzantine or Roman Empire and they found refu refuge in the Latin West, and they brought with them their learning and their documents from their Greco-Roman tradition to Italy and other regions that helped propel the Renaissance, as well as the Reformation. And many Greek refugees began to move even further west. Uh, they left Italy, and they moved west and north, and they were sort of dispersed throughout Europe. They brought with them, for example, the writings of Plato and Aristotle. <clears throat> so Tyndale was fortunate enough to work in an age in which Greek learning was available to the European scholarly community for the first time in centuries. And in addition to Greek manuscripts, European scholars had begun to explore Hebrew manuscripts. There was a growing interest in learning Hebrew. There was a, a scholar named Johann Reuchlin, and you can see his dates up there. He was a German-born Catholic humanist and a scholar of Greek and Hebrew. And he spent a good deal of time advancing knowledge throughout Germany of the Greek and Hebrew languages. So Reuchlin's Hebrew grammar was published in 1506. And this was important because now European scholars who were not themselves Jewish could take the Hebrew scriptures and begin to work on translating them. Now, again, if you recall, John Wycliffe's Bible was a translation of a translation, not the best. But the Bible that Tyndale produced was a translation from the original languages, both Hebrew and Greek, directly into English. And given the fact that Tyndale was a brilliant man, he did a very good job with his translations. Also, up on the screen, you can see a portrait of Erasmus himself. It's a little bit dark, but um, he was, um, Again, very important, and he his work was very important for other figures in the Reformation as well as Tyndale. Now we come to a very important technological development, and I don't know how well you can 
see that drawing, but that is a drawing of Johann Gutenberg's uh, movable type printing press. And this was one of the most truly revolutionary ideas and developments in technology in all of human history. Because with the movable type printing press, now information, books, learning, and knowledge could be widely disseminated. So in Germany around 1440, about 100 years before Tyndale, the goldsmith Johannes Gutenberg invented the movable type printing press and it started truly a printing revolution. And before long, there were printing presses all throughout Europe. Now, woodblock printing in East Asia had been prevalent since the Tang Dynasty in the 8th century. And in Europe, people had been using this type of technology to print. And they had also invented uh, so-called screw presses. Um, but those types of presses were um, not as easy to use in the sense that there was no movable type. The individual letters were not little you know, pieces of metal that you could arrange in a tray so that you could set them up endlessly to print many different types of documents. And again, this was one of the most important developments really in much of human history. Now, there you can see a picture of the Gutenberg Bible. There are, uh, I think, about 27 or so Gutenberg Bibles from the 14 and 1500s that still exist today. Um, there's a Gutenberg Bible in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. If you're ever in Washington, go to the Library of Congress and you can see that Bible. Uh, so what they began to print initially was the Latin Vulgate, because of course this, this was the authorized version of the church at that time. And it really wasn't legal to print anybody else's Bible. So they started, they started off with the Latin Vulgate. But again, this is a Bible that many people could not read for themselves because it was in Latin. But the Gutenberg Bible is valued for its high aesthetic and artistic qualities as well as, as its historic significance. And for anybody who can read Latin, you can read a Gutenberg Bible to this day. And again, if you understand Latin, it's pretty, the type is pretty clear and easy to read even, uh, even today. So again, we know that William Tyndale studied at Oxford and Cambridge, where he was able to use the updated Greek text of the New Testament that Erasmus had published. You see, once it was possible to print books, and it was becoming cheaper, cheaper and easier to print books, uh, then knowledge and learning began to be widely disseminated past the universities. And um, there were aristocrats. Again, not everybody could read Latin. Even wealthy, educated ar aristocrats might not have been able to read Latin. But more and more, these ideas and the knowledge was beginning to spread because they were printed into books, which were then sold, and anybody could buy them. 
Now, after leaving Cambridge, Tyndale became the tutor of the children of Sir John Walsh, the Knight of Gloucestershire. And in Sir John's household, Tyndale met many church leaders. He argued theology with all of them, and many considered him a heretic. So one clergyman with whom Tyndale argued said, we had better be without God's laws than the Pope's. And Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. In other words, I'm going to make this available to everyone. Tyndale became convinced that the English Christians needed a translation of the Bible from the original languages. So Tyndale moved to London where he hoped to enter the service of Bishop Tunstall. But Tunstall turned Tyndale away, saying that he had no room in his household for Tyndale. And it could also be possible that uh, Tunstall, who was a, you know, a bishop in the Catholic Church, um, had heard of what Tyndale was doing, had heard of the controversy he had been stirring up. So Tyndale found a friend in an, a man by the name of Humphrey Monmouth. Humphrey Monmouth was a textile merchant. He was not a lord, he was not a rich man, but he was a fairly prosperous merchant, and he had heard about Tyndale. He had listened to Tyndale's preaching in London, and he took Tyndale and supported him. Tyndale stayed in London for a year, but then left for Hamburg, Germany to translate the Bible into English. He felt he could not do the work he needed to do in England. So he began translating the New Testament in 1524, and, he, and then moved from Hamburg to Wittenberg. And the, the name Wittenberg should, you know, ring a bell for most of us because that was where uh, Martin Luther was based, at least for part of the time that he was working. So again, the ideas of what would become the Reformation were continuing to spread. Tyndale completed his translation of the New Testament in 1525, and he received assistance from a Franciscan friar, a monk named William Roy. In 1525, publication of the work by Peter Quintel, who had a printing press, and printed Tyndale's translation into books in Cologne, Germany, but it was interrupted by the impact of anti-Lutheranism, which means the political and religious authorities began cracking down on uh, all this reformational activity in Cologne. So Tyndale had to kind of you know, move once again. He was able to get a full edition of his New Testament in English uh, in 1526 by the printer Peter Schoffer in Worms, which is another city in Germany. Along with the spread of revolutionary ideas, manuscripts, 
and printing spread as well throughout Europe. There were presses all over Europe. Soon, people in Antwerp, Belgium, were printing copies of Tyndale's work. And uh, merchants, English merchants, were smuggling books, these books, into, as well as other works, back into England and Scotland. They would hide them in their in their uh, containers of textiles and other goods, and they smuggled the Bibles back into England and Scotland. So this, uh, Tyndale's work became noticed by the Bishop of Tunstall. Uh, his English New Testament was condemned by Tunstall in 1526, and warnings were issued to the sellers of these books, and copies were burned in public. Now, if there's one, one thing, if you want people not to read something, don't have a public book burning. <laughs> because of course, when people see these books being burned, they wonder, what is in those books? Why is everyone so upset? <laughs> and one observer of the book burning noted that the spectacle of the scriptures being put to the torch provoked controversy even amongst the faithful. So, you know, this truly backfired on the authorities that wanted to, you know, stamp out uh, Tyndale's New Testament. <clears throat> Bishop Tunstall of London bitterly opposed Tyndale's New Testament. He charged that certain children of iniquity belonging to Luther's sect had with crafty trickery, translated into English the holy gospel of God. And Tunstall ordered that all copies be collected and burned. Now, there was an important figure in English uh, society named Cardinal Wolsey. He ordered the English ambassador who was on the continent, the ambassador to the Holy Roman Empire, he ordered the ambassador to go to the emperor and, and have all the presses and the New Testaments burned throughout Europe. So Cardinal Thomas Wolsey at that time was one of the most powerful men in England and he condemned Tyndale as a heretic. Following the hostile reception of his work by Tunstall, Wolsey, and also Sir Thomas More in England, Tyndale retreated into hiding in Hamburg, Germany, and continued working. At that time, Germany was divided up into little, uh, some of them larger, some of them smaller, kind of city-states that were ruled by different princes. Some of the princes were pro-Catholic, some of them were pro-Reformation. And at that time, many of the reformers, people like Luther and Tyndale, had to basically find sanctuary wherever they could. Uh, if it was in a city-state that was ruled by a prince who was pro-Lutheran or pro-Reformation, likely that scholar could find a safe place but of course, if you left that city-state and you tried to travel freely through Europe, 
you wouldn't have been able to in many cases without being apprehended. And again, this is so, this highlights, I think, for us, the fact that the printing press, you know, even though it was difficult for the people who were promoting the ideas of the Reformation, they could not travel freely abroad, but their works were being able to be printed and spread abroad everywhere. <clears throat> Anybody know who this imposing person is? Yep, Henry VIII. So Tyndale wrote other works besides uh, his work on translating the scriptures. In 1530, Tyndale wrote The Practice of Prelates. Prelates meaning uh, important church figures. And in this book, he opposed Henry VIII's planned annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. If you recall, Henry VIII wanted to marry Anne Boleyn after his current wife, Catherine of Aragon, had failed to produce a male heir. In his book, Tyndale argued that divorce for this reason was unscriptural. Now, Sir Thomas More was another very important figure, both in the church and in the English government. Uh, Sir Thomas More began a literary debate against Tyndall. He couldn't debate Tyndall in person because Tyndall was in hiding in Germany. But again, because of the spread of printing and the communications revolution, they were able to write things against each other and have those published and spread abroad. Sir Thomas More was an English lawyer, social philosopher, author, statesman, and noted Renaissance humanist. However, he was a staunch pro-Catholic champion. He was opposed to the movement in Europe and England that later became known as the Reformation. Sir Thomas More was opposed to Tyndale's New Testament in part for translations of key words that were considered heretical. For example, Tyndale translated the Greek word presbyteros as senior or elder instead of priest. And you can see why this would be disturbing to the church hierarchy of the time because what he's advocating is, through this type of translation, he's advocating that we understand that those who are over us in the Lord are not priests, but they are senior people who have leadership abilities. Priest is something that the Catholic Church wanted to promote because the Catholic Church, the sacraments, all of that were administered by the priests. Tyndale also translated ecclesia, a word that many of you may be familiar with, um, assembly or called out ones. He used the word congregation instead of church. And again, this was upsetting to the, to the uh, Roman Catholic hierarchy because what he's advocating is a really kind of a pro-democratic approach to the church. If we call the church the church, then we, there's, at that time there was only one church. 
if we call the church something else, that may begin to suggest there's, there's a different church, there's a different congregation than what people were aware of up to that time. Now, Tyndale didn't quit. In 1528, he published The Obedience of a Christian Man, which contained more revolutionary ideas. Tyndale's work, The Obedience of a Christian Man, advocated that the king of a country was the head of that country's church rather than the pope. Okay. He went so far as to advocate the divine right of kings. And if you think about it, this kind of makes sense that someone in Tyndale's position would argue this way. If you want to throw off the authority of the Roman Catholic Church and the authority of the pope, well, you have to have some other authority. Who better than the king to exert that kind of authority, even in the spiritual realm? Now, this is very difficult for us living in 2019 in the United States of America to understand these ideas. You know, we, we can read a book, like you can go online and you can get The Obedience of a Christian Man. You can read it. And um, there are modern translations of it available. And you, you know, you can think, well, why does there have to be any overarching superior authority to the church or a, a political authority or anything like that? We have, uh, we have a form of representative uh, government in which we, in effect, rule ourselves. Of course, this is an idea that didn't come along for many more centuries. And at that time, I don't think it would have been really possible for people in Tyndale's time, Tyndale and others, even though they were advocating a movement away from the Roman Catholic Church, spreading different religious ideas, the idea of people ruling themselves would, would just have seemed crazy and outlandish to the people living at that time. But this was definitely a step away from uh, the idea of the church being ruled from a central hierarchy um, in all countries. So as Henry VIII was trying to obtain permission from the Pope to divorce his first wife or annul that marriage, Anne Boleyn, the next lady in line, uh, she asked Henry to read Tyndale's book, The Obedience of a Christian Man. Now, Henry really liked this book. And afterwards, he exclaimed, this is a book for me and all kings to read. So on the one hand, Tyndale was opposing what Henry wanted to do with his, his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, and on the other hand, he was promoting ideas that Henry was definitely in favor of. The, you know, for Henry to, to think about being the head of the church in England was certainly better than you know, having to listen to the pope and do what the pope told him to do. So this book has basically five sections, and again, it contains many ideas that are truly revolutionary for his time. 
Tyndale's central concept of experiencing God through the reading of the scriptures. This is something we truly take for granted today. You know, when we share the gospel today, one of the first things we encourage new converts or, or even people who haven't yet made a decision to give their lives to Christ, what is one of the main things that we exhort them to do? We tell them to read the Bible, and we try to help make that understandable and accessible to them because we believe that you can directly experience God for yourself by reading the scriptures. Now, Tyndale was also focused on the church's disobedience to God in teaching ecclesiastical law rather than scripture. He felt there was a big gap between what the church was teaching as God's law versus what the scriptures show as God's law. He laid out God's laws of obedience, addressed to all of English society he explained how one should obey and rule in life. And then he included a discussion on the literal interpretation of scripture. Tyndale argued, how can we whet God's word, that is, put into practice, use, and exercise upon our children and household when we are violently kept from it and know it not. Tyndale accused the church of keeping the people away from and claiming all authority over scripture. He believed that the reading of scripture directly reveals the power of God to the individual without the need of an intermediary like a priest. Again, truly revolutionary. One of the key concerns in the obedience of a Christian man is the availability of an English language Bible for the common people to read. Tyndale criticized the church for allowing the English people to be ignorant of the Bible and replacing the teaching of scripture with ceremonies or ritual superstition. And here's a quote from Tyndale, on the holy days which were ordained to preach God's word, ye set up long ceremonies, long matins, long masses, and long evensongs, and all in Latin, that they understand not, and roll them in darkness, that ye may lead them whither ye will. Now, Tyndale planned to do a translation of the Old Testament from the original Hebrew. And again, with the help of Reuchlin's Hebrew grammar and the Hebrew scriptures that he was able to obtain in Hebrew and given his genius for language. And I don't know about if you've ever looked at Hebrew, it's a very different than English. But this genius was able to take the Hebrew scriptures and produce an excellent translation of the Pentateuch. In other words, the books from Genesis to Deuteronomy in 1530. He worked on a translation of the book of Jonah and it was published in 1531. 
He published a revised version of the New Testament in 1534 with the Old Testament passages where they are quoted in the New Testament translated from the original Hebrew. From 1534, he worked on more Old Testament translation. Now, the translators of the English Revised Standard Version in the 1940s, the 20th century, noted that Tyndale's translation, including the 1537 Matthew Bible, which I hope to touch on next month, inspired the translations that followed. The Great Bible of 1539, the Geneva Bible of 1560, the Bishop's Bible of 1568, the Douay Rheims Bible of 1582 to 1609, and finally, the King James Version, which came out first in 1611. <clears throat> the RSV translators noted it, the King James Version, kept felicitous phrases and apt expressions from whatever source which had stood the test of public usage, it owed most especially in the New Testament to Tyndale. According to scholars, the King James Version shows that Tyndale's words account for about 84% of the New Testament and 75.8% of the Old Testament books that he translated. Many of the English versions since then have drawn inspiration from Tyndale, such as the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the English Standard Version, which of course we use today. And you have ESVs available to you in the pews. Now, as you might suspect, William Tyndale did not live very long. Uh, he was about 42 when he was put to death. In the last years of his life, um, unfortunately, he was betrayed by a so-called friend to the imperial authorities in Belgium. He was seized in Antwerp in 1535 and held in the castle of Vilford near Brussels. He was tried on a charge of heresy in 1536 and was condemned to be burned to death. Despite Thomas Cromwell, there, he was an English lord and a minister or a government, high-placed government official of Henry VIII, even though Cromwell interceded on Tyndale's behalf. One of Tyndale's last requests in prison was for a lamp, a Hebrew Bible, a Hebrew grammar, and a Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. So he went to his death continuing to work and press forward, even though, again, his life, unfortunately, was cut very short. And he's one of the many people in history, I think, if he had been able to live his whole full natural life, Think of how much more he could have provided uh, the Christian people, not just in England, but throughout the world, and how much we have benefited from all of his effort. And I appreciate myself very much 
the, the risks he was willing to take. He was always ready to go to his death because he knew that eventually this is how it would end up, as it did, unfortunately, for so many during the time of the Reformation. So that concludes our look at uh, William Tyndale. I hope very much that you will be interested to learn more about him. Um, much of the material that I had for this presentation, once again, comes from the English, our English Bible in the making. Um, again, unfortunately, it's out of print as far as I can tell. Uh, they should print more copies. <laughs> Maybe somebody will do that at some point or revise it and update it. Yeah, so, uh, and there's plenty of stuff on the internet, of course, um, and you can read The Obedience of a Christian Man on the internet for free. So, thank you.